This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? Fantastic. All right. Are you at a WeWork? I am, yeah. And as soon as you joined, somebody started talking out there. So unfortunately, that's I can't get to a completely silent place. I apologize. No worries. Where where are you at specifically? Uh, we're in Manhattan. Uh, so oh, I've been in that WeWork before. Yeah. Uh, around Soho, one of the WeWorks. There are now so many of them. We're just in one of the older uh, Soho WeWorks, actually. Oh, there's more than one in Manhattan? <laughs> there are a lot now. Many. Oh, okay. Yeah, WeWork yeah. has taken over the world. I think they're one of the largest real estate uh, companies in all of New York now. Yeah, so they're pretty large. But they're just wow. renters too. They don't own any of this. They're just in the, they just have like a massive, they're the, one of the biggest renters, I guess. Yeah, I saw an article the other day about how they took a play from the McDonald's playbook. Hmm. About how they booted up. Um, like Ray Kroc, I believe is his name. But if you, have you ever watched the um, Netflix? It's on, it's a movie, but it's like the McDonald's the show. Founder. Yeah, yeah, I actually haven't seen it. It's on my, my list, but I've, uh, I haven't watched it. I suggest it. I think it's really good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. it's very clever. This is it, how they, they franchised it in order to make it pop up faster? Yeah, it's the whole story of the business. Okay. And it's like, it's quite possibly very, the most interesting thing you're going to watch this month. <laughs> Sounds good, yeah. Good hype. I mean, look, at it's on every corner. It's kind of interesting. It's like, you, you want to know their origin story, right? Yeah. The, the other one I've been meaning to watch that just got on Netflix is, I forget, it's called like American Company or something like that. And it's, it's about a, or American Factory. And it's about a Chinese investor investing in a, an American I think, glass factory that was sort of winding down and they're trying to create some cross-specific you know, cross business with glass factories in China, but also in the U.S., it looks interesting and seemingly interesting given the current political climate, um, but it just came on Netflix. Yeah, I just saw the Jack Ma and Elon Musk clip on YouTube from some international summit that was in China. And they were talking about, Musk was like blown away by China. He was like, this is their unbelievably advanced. I've never seen people build something so with such high quality so fast. It's because it's really just mind blowing. Yeah, that's... Uh... It's interesting to hear Musk say that because one of the things that that I've been thinking about a lot recently with uh, with the work Musk is doing is can we automate so much of the uh, the process uh, of manufacturing to a point where the labor costs are less significant and uh, we can we can manufacture anywhere. So you know, in in a world where the labor costs are one of the largest drivers, of course, so much you know, so much manufacturing has gone offshore uh, and if labor costs become much less significant and instead the access to know-how for, for automation becomes much more significant and the U.S. is one of the largest, you know, largest markets for, for that experience, uh, will it make more sense to move factories back or at least much closer? And I, I think that you know, trade, trade war aside, and that, that's certainly already driving a lot of manufacturing out of China into other, other developing markets where labor costs are lower, but the next step might be to bring factories uh, much closer to the end consumer, you know, wherever the, you know, the, the main costs will be, you know, access to the raw materials price, you know, that the cost of shipping goods to the end consumer and 
they cost to maintain and you know improve an automated system. And in that world, I wonder if a lot more manufacturing will come home or close to them. I think you're right. I think ultimately after this long journey, we end up where we started in like these small communities that are self-sustaining, right? Because that's where we started, small self-sustaining communities. And we were like hunter gatherers and we were uh, moving about all the time. And then we separated and isolated specific things to be manufactured in specific places. And I think ultimately we'll all come back to like super advanced 3D printing machines and local gardens that are run by autonomous things. Everything will just be in these self-contained it's like distributed systems, right? That's the most stable system you can have is a bunch of self, a collection of self-contained systems. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, that that we'll get to that future. I mean, I still think that one of the, one of the very interesting uh, conflicts in technology is whether or not it makes more sense to distribute or to centralize. And there, there's, I, I'm not sure that it's always one way or the other. So, for example, in in renewable energy, for example, a lot of solar has been extremely decentralized. We, you know, it's, it's residential. We, we put individual solar panels on, you know, on, you know, various homeowners' roofs. And that actually turns out to be very difficult to manage. Uh, and the, there's a big centralization. There's a potential, I'd say, uh, advantage to centralizing more solar uh, to have large solar farms where you can uh, have a you know, dedicated interconnection to the grid, actually having distributed assets connected to the grid causes a lot of trouble for the grid. So this is just an example of uh, how I, I think that you know, de decentralization makes systems much more resilient, but it can also come at, a, you know, at an efficiency cost, for example. Same thing in you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies that you know, look how much we spend in energy or you know, whatever the you know, proof is to... Uh, you know, to have this decentralized system. It turns out that trust, you know, if you, if you, if you have a, a, a system where trust is assumed uh, and you know, managed by a couple of central authorities, that's a very efficient system. It might not be the most resilient if it turns out that, you know, that trust ever gets broken, but uh, it's, it's very efficient compared to, you know, the trustless alternative. Be an interesting tech talk, the spectrum of decentralization right? Because technically, like, once you split it into two, it's kind of decentralized. So it's like, how, like, where does the efficiency and where is the spectrum versus like, how, because like, if you say, like, in our state, we have this company called FPL, Florida Power and Light, and they started to create these miniature farms, like near schools, right, mm -hmm. where you could like buy into it. And it was a couple acres of land, but they're solar farms, like they're miniature ones for that community. And they would decentralize them for like little community versus right. having them in the middle of the state where no one sees them. That way people can feel like they're part of it. So there's like some, to, there's like a spectrum of like how, how much centralization or decentralization is too much and versus if it's effectiveness. Yeah. I actually quite like that idea. I mean, that, that lets individuals go. feel like they're, you know, they're, they're part of this. It's not something that's hidden you're managed only by the, the, the grid operator, the, the energy company, but uh, it also is probably much easier to maintain and you know uh, make sure that those panels are working and that the the, the interconnection with the grid is well is well managed. Yeah, so let's let's take it over to Predata. What does Predata do? Yeah, so Predata is a predictive analytics company uh, that uses machine learning to relate online activity to geopolitical and economic trends, uh, and the you know, the, the the problems that we're trying to solve, the clients that we work with today, are you know, fall into two primary verticals. So we have a uh, finance angle, so the applications there are perhaps the most obvious, make money or manage your risk to not lose money. Uh, and then we have a security business as well. 
So you're tracking like security threats and how they spread or what do you do with the security side? Yeah. So a lot of this is, it's, it's still trends. It's, it's identifying things like, is there, you know, is attention in the conflict in Kashmir on, you know, on the rise or specific, you know, aspects of that, you know, of that, uh, of that conflict and being able to track that, you know, on both sides of that border uh, and around the world. Are you the only people doing this? Like who else is doing this right now? Yeah. So I, I think that, I actually think that there aren't a lot of people doing this in an automated way. So I, I'd say that there are a lot of people who are trying to track trends, but on the, especially on the geopolitical side, the state of the art is still very much uh, employing human experts, you know, domain specific experts, analysts who try to ingest as much information as possible uh, in order to uh, come to come, uh, come to some conclusion about where they you know where they think things are heading. Uh, so pre-data is one of the key insights that pre-data brings to this table is that there's just too much work for humans to you know to do this job. There's limited hours in the day. You can't have an unlimited you know team of unlimited size, but there's so much to read. There's uh, you know, humans can miss unobvious patterns uh, in the data, and so pre-data is bringing some quantitative rigor to a space where up to this point it's been largely qualitative, uh, but also we uh, can get, just search through much more data. Uh, that being said, uh, we're not trying to uh, replace these, you know, these human domain specific experts. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the models that we're building. And that's because if the geopolitical space is uh, one where you have problems of international scope, uh, lots of hidden information or information that would be very difficult to you know to measure, uh, and so there's there's a lot of uncertainty that you're not going to be able to remove from these models. It's not facial recognition. Uh, so rather than getting to a black box model where we think that we can you know, we can tell our end client just just do with it you know trust whatever the model says use that in your decision making. What we instead want to do is you know augment the ability of uh, of human experts to make sure that they don't miss information that they might otherwise miss. Uh, we want to make sure that our models are showing their work in a sense. So we want the end user to be able to see why the, you know, why pre-data came to the conclusion that it did, what went into that, uh, and allow them to sort of confirm, confirm for themselves that they, that they think that we're capturing something interesting or alternatively a bit spurious and that, it, that they can ignore it. But on the spectrum of, AI is going to replace humans to AI is going to upgrade humans. We fall you know, heavily on the, you know, on the, the ladder. <laughs> and then we invest in Neuralink. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to remain relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm, I'm, I'm team relevance as well. So when you were like in elementary school, did you dream of geopolitical data? To be honest? No, I don't, I don't think I'd say that my, my interest was very much on the, technology side, you know, my, my entire life, I grew up inspired by uh, astrophysics, you know, things coming out of NASA. I thought I wanted to be an aerospace engineer at one point. Uh, and I, I built, you know, I built Rube Goldberg machines. I was, I was very much an engineering sort of kid growing up. And then uh, when I got to college, that was my first taste of uh, computer science and programming. And that that changed my life. I, I knew within a couple of weeks of taking you know, my first computer science class that that was what I always wanted to do. That that, that was the thing I 
didn't know that I always wanted to do because it, the time to the iteration time, the cycle time was so short. Uh, and I just fell in love with that. You know, any idea that I had or any problem that I faced, I could sort of rapidly, you know, rapidly uh, uh, overcome it uh, and you know, try something new and you know, see if that worked. Uh, so that that cycle time, the ability to you know, to refine a product very quickly that way was uh, was intoxicating to me. But uh, I didn't want to rule out the the liberal arts uh, and being you know some and being a person with a broader uh, understanding of what was happening in the world. So I, I didn't actually I didn't go to a a purely technical school. Uh, I, I went to Princeton and one of the reasons I chose Princeton was precisely because it had a fantastic liberal arts program and it had the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Policy. And so that I, I, I'd always pictured using technology to make the world a better place. And I, I understood that it was very important to have a strong you know, humanities foundation. And uh, I think that's why I ultimately ended up where I am today. But I, I found like-minded people at Princeton and that's what became Predata. That's amazing. Now, did you, were you like one of the co-founders of Predata or did you come in after it was already established? Yeah, so I, I came in shortly after it was established. Uh, I, the, the co-founders were one of my good friends at Princeton and then uh, a, uh, a professor uh, or a, a lecturer at Princeton. And I had taken his class on uh, innovation, basically, you know, global innovation, the inter the, uh, at the interface of uh, technology and policy. So it was very much on, you know, how do you, you know, how do you innovate ra uh, radically in global markets in the face of uh, regulation, various regulation around the world. Uh, and they, you know, my, my friend had taken that class the year before. Uh, so he and the lecturer started free data and I, I realized that that was something I was very excited about. So I, uh, I basically actually started working in college <laughs> for the company. Uh, so, yeah. That's exciting. So you went to college and you actually got a job. You're like the 0.01%, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I was, uh, I was working on this before. Yeah. Even before I graduation. So yeah, pretty, pretty early, pretty lucky. But that shows you the importance of relationships, like throughout your career, right? Yes. You meet people. It's very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's very important to to, to have communicate. Yeah, you have to be able to communicate with other people and you know bounce ideas off of each other and and, and see where other people's pain points are. You, you can't innovate in a vacuum. So, how does your engineering team look right now? Do you local, remote, hybrid? Uh, yeah, so it's 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 all local really. But though we're, I'm a big fan of of being able to potentially work you know wherever I am and. Uh, so we, we still, we allow people to, to work remotely a certain amount of the time each, each month, but uh, we're currently located all in Manhattan. Uh, I think it's important for us to, I've been following trends in, in remote work very, very closely actually, because I, I value having uh, interaction in person. I think that it's just a faster communication link. Uh, you can learn much more quickly, share what you've, you know, share what you've learned much more quickly. But at the same time, I, I do think that it's, it's nice to be able to work anywhere where we have a laptop and Wi-Fi. What are you guys using in your stacks? We're, we're a Python shop, uh, I guess, primarily because machine learning, you know, so much, so much that ecosystem is now uh, based around Python. And uh, on the server side, we use Django. 
Uh, we use Celery, if you're familiar with that, for task orchestration. Uh, so it's, a, yeah, I'd say a well-established stack in the Python ecosystem. So how large is the team now that you're currently managing for engineering? It is eight. Uh, and what, yeah, and so like, oh, you're hiring? Is that what you're gonna say? Oh yeah, we are. <laughs> yes. Oh, nice. Yeah. We're, so people want to people want to learn more about that. Where would they go? Just predata.com. Uh, yes. If you go to predata.com, we should have a link to. Uh, we have a profile on the Muse, uh, and that's where most of our uh, all of our information should be there. Oh, nice. So if people are interested in working at a company that's changing the world, small small startup style company, right? You're growing, lots yeah. of energy, solving big problems, they'd head over to predata.com, check it out. Exactly. Nice. Yeah, we're, we should be hiring throughout the rest of the year, through the next year, as far as we can see. <laughs> what type of positions are you looking for? Yeah, so the, the engineering team is currently split into roughly uh, three different roles. So we have, uh, we're hiring for machine learning engineers, uh, platform engineers and front-end engineers. I, I, I would also say that given how small we are, uh, these are not extreme. It's not like anything is walled off. Uh, everybody has, you know, everybody is cross-functional uh, to to some extent. You know, and as as much as people want to be really, we you know we we want people to do anything that they're you know, capable and productive at doing. Uh, so, yeah, we have members of our data science team on the machine learning side who are currently working on. Delivering, you know, building microservices for delivering new kinds of data to uh, to our clients or to uh, our internal analyst team. Uh, we have members of our platform team who are currently actually experimenting with uh, new ways of representing the data that we, you know, representing the data that we've collected in order to make things like search easier. So it's very cross-functional. And so has, when it started, was it was just you in engineering and now you've built this team of eight or how did that evolve? So yeah, it started with my, my friend, the co-founder, myself, uh, one other engineer, and we've grown this team up to, to eight. Nice. So you're learning a lot then right now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, you, you never stop learning, right? Uh, we, one of the things that we hire for is we're, we're looking for autodidacts, people who are able to able to learn new things in a very uh, self-directed way and are constantly driven to read and research and you know, try, try out new ideas or implement new papers, for example. We're all autodidacts, constantly learning. So, so autodidacts means constantly learning? Self-learning, yeah. Oh, I got a new word. It's great because like, the, the show got popular and so then we got like a lot of big named guests on. It's like if you listen to like earlier episodes, it's a lot of like, startup companies, medium-sized companies, and like the later episodes have been like 10,000 employees stuff. Yeah. And so when I ask them to go back, they're giving me advice from like 15, 20 years ago. And so I, I'm like, let's bring in some high energy startup companies so we can get that advice, like hear from them what's going on right now. And that's why, you know, trying to bring as much value with the show as possible, hearing from extremely experienced people that are experienced and just going through it for the first time right now. I love it, man. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was fun to listen to. to uh, I, I, so I, I've listened to the show, and uh, oh, cool. it's, it's great to, uh, to, that you have that mix. Uh, it's definitely not the case that, you know, at a small company, you know, some of the things that are difficult for us are, for example, having the best metrics to, you know, to show what, you know, knowing all the metrics that we need to focus on and how to record those, that, that can be very hard for a startup, right? You don't necessarily know what those metrics are, and you don't know how to record yeah. them. Uh, and 
yeah, building the team, you know, that I, I still have, you know, I spend a lot of my time thinking about you know, what the team is going, going to look like. Uh, and once you get larger, I feel like those, some of those challenges become maybe not the CTO's responsibility. <laughs> but It's always changing. It's like, it's yeah. energetic, it's fun, it's unique. Like that's what, that's what keeps it so exciting, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you wear many hats. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love, I actually just slacked Chloe. Here we go. Brought it in. So we've actually, um, I wanted to share this with you cause we were just talking, you just mentioned it up. So I slacked it real quick. So this is actually every process that happens at my business. It's the standard oh, wow. operating procedure. And what happened was we wanted to do this for like a couple months. You got a year into the business. And it's like everything from like job descriptions, every role, every responsibility, and it's all laid out. Now, some people hold multiple roles, right? But eventually it'll scale out. And it's like, as soon as we get a procedure to where a point where like it's somewhat known to have some useful result, then it goes in here and we put like everything in it from sales to releasing software, like everything we do. And I'll tell you the biggest difference in the world and my business came when we started printing out these Google docs and putting them into this binder. Huh? So that, I don't know that why. is very interesting. I, uh, I, I'm also a huge, uh, huge proponent for writing, you know, writing down processes. I mean that currently my job is mostly, I'd, I'd say process refinement, right? It's, it's figuring out what, what process needs to be put in place and then how to, how to execute on it. So. Do you print it out into a binder? Well, I haven't gotten that part. Yeah, I need to try that. I mean, we, we share a lot of information you know, through, uh, through Google Drive. Uh, That's what we do too. But we yeah. just started printing it out. And like, there's something that happens in the universe. Like when you print it out, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's there and you hold it and you can like, it's just different. Right. I don't know why. Because like once you print it out and then you go make change, you like, you get into this concept of like, you want it to like look better. It's like doing a report in school. Like you, you start to gain pride over it versus it just being like another Google doc you can clone and hit plus and like, like it just something, something happens at least yeah. for me and our team. Well, I really believe that, you know, until you write these things down, you, you can't really refine them. Right. In the, in the same way that you can't optimize what isn't measured. I would say that, you know, so I'm a big fan of that saying, but I, I think it extends to, to things like processes, even if, you know, if, even if it isn't necessarily a quantitative measurement, just having that, you know, uh, that process recorded, uh, makes you think about what, per, what pieces are actually, uh, essential, uh, what pieces maybe aren't always applicable, you know, what could still use work. And it's a discussion point to have with other people. Yeah. So I know you're, you guys are getting started and getting out there. Uh, anyone listening to the show, you think that like who, who would be listening to the show that would have a, a use to like reach out and be a customer of yours? Yeah. I mean, I, I think anybody who has some sort of exposure, geopolitical exposure uh, should, should reach out today anyway. I mean, one, I think in the future we'll, you know, we'll have the ability to measure trends about things that aren't only geopolitical. Uh, and in that world, I think there's, there's a reason for, uh, you know, corporate, you know, corporate intelligence customers or, you know, business intelligence customers to reach out as well. But, uh, today the focus, geopolitical focus. So if you have international supply chains or if you're a trader, uh, with global exposure, you know, or if you, if you have, uh, have infrastructure resources in parts of the world where you're concerned about security, uh, those are all reasons to reach out to us. 
So have you gotten to the point yet where you're helping, like you're creating the career ladders at your company for like how your engineers can progress? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think that we're imposing a lot of hierarchy right now. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm very, uh, very focused on how career progression is going to look and making sure that people are constantly learning and moving on to, you know, the, new projects, the next step in their, you know, their development as engineers. I mean, it's still, it's, it's, it's an eight person team. And, you know, as we hire here, I don't want us to have a incredibly, you know, complex ornate tree, but I, I do want to make sure that we have uh, a, a way to ramp people up from, you know, you're just starting at pre-data, you know, here are the ropes, here's how the technology works to uh, becoming, you know, a, a big driver of what the product is and what the technology is. Yeah. How do you onboard? How do you pair? How do you get people into the company successfully? Right? Yeah. I mean, how do we, how do we train engineers to, you know, to think about product, understand you know, the needs of our end user? Uh, how do we expect them to uh, provide effective code review to their peers? Uh, how do we work across teams? So, let, you know, allowing, people to be cross-functional. And so, for example, we have uh, members of our front-end team who are working with members of our uh, data science team in order to improve the way that we represent our data in our SaaS platform. That might not be the very first project that, that a member of our front-end team would take on, but uh, as, we, you know, as people uh, become more sophisticated, we can take on more complicated projects, bigger challenges. Yeah, and usually when I talk to companies, usually when engineering hits around 30 people, that's when dynamics start to change because then mm -hmm. you won't have a personal relationship with everybody and you're the CTO. And it's like, how do you communicate in a way where you can engage with everybody and, and people will start asking for things and, and wanting you know, a more mature company at around 30 people in engineering is usually when that happens. Like right now, it's like nice to have, you got to keep everybody like focused, but then like it the pressure builds, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, we do have, uh, so we do have separate teams here. I mean, we have the, the data science team and the rest of engineering are semi-autonomous. They have separate annual goals, for example. Uh, but yeah, 30 actually seems a little late to me. I mean, I, I feel like by the time you get to eight or 10, it becomes fairly difficult to have a <laughs> personal you know, uh, interaction with every member of the team. I mean, the, it's possible that it would you know, definitely be a full-time job. And uh, I do have, you know, there are other members of the team who focus on more of the day-to-day -day of you know, how, how data science is operating, how engineering is operating. And I, I, tried, I try to spend my time on um, either things at a strategic level and a product level or things at a process level. So whatever the day-to-day -day of those teams is, making sure that those teams can be productive. Uh, and then finally, I, I do spend time uh, working one-on-one -on -one with especially uh, especially newer members of the team in order to on-ramp them. Dude, that's awesome. I'm excited. You're you're like avoiding 80% of the mistakes, right? Like that's all, like just by hearing how you structure your day, it's like, woo. <laughs> that's like, you're on, it looks like you're on the right path. That's very exciting. Yeah, I, well, I, thank you. I, I hope so. I, I, I feel like it's working. I, I, I know that I, uh, I, I still feel like I've, write more code than I should and less than I'd like to. <laughs> and that is, that's one of the challenging things for me. I started this job because I, I love that, but now it's time for me to think more about team processes uh, and making sure that we're uh, hiring effectively and 
hiring people that are you know going to be a good fit for you know for our culture and for the task and then making sure that they ultimately are successful yeah like i think of it like visualization as like an interstate and you can get off at whatever exit like you want so you could just decide that i only want to write code and then you hire out someone to do the other stuff and to keep it going but you can go really really far yeah i i mean i i try to when I code, I try to pick things that are either going to be enablers for the rest of the team. So for example, when I code these days, a lot of the time it's, it's tests, <laughs> which might not even be the most fun thing to do, but it's, it's an enabler for, for the rest of the team. Or uh, sometimes I'll pick things where I, every once in a while something will come up where I feel like I just have the right expertise to take on, a pro take on that project and do it quickly enough that it, it makes sense for me to do it. But I, I try to focus on things that are uh, going to make other people more productive. I love it. So what, what's the culture like there? Like, what do you value? Yeah, well, so as I, as I said, uh, we look for autodidacts. Uh, we look for explorers, uh, people who are excited to take on new problems because we, we always, as, you know, as a very small startup, it's inevitable that problems arise that nobody on the team has deep experience uh, solving. And so it's important for us to be able to uh, hire hire engineers who can who are excited to take on these problems, you know, venture out with a little bit of guidance, but sometimes not as much as I'd like, and then come back and say, you know, these are the things that I've tried, uh, these are the things still left to try. Like here, let's exchange notes. Uh, so that sort of explorer mentality is important to us. Uh, and along with that, I think it's very important. And we, we, to have you know, to find engineers who are able to uh, get started quickly with a you know, sort of low cost of you know, low price of failure. So uh, whenever I see somebody who is able to, you know, uh, rapidly iterate and they're not afraid, I think there are two mistakes that people make here. They're either afraid to, to move forward because they're afraid of breaking something or they, they're just so gung ho that they, that they break things indiscriminately. And that, that balance is, the people that are in between are the best engineers in my mind. They're the people who figure out how to put on all the, the appropriate, you know, training rails uh, so that they, you know, if they do make a mistake, uh, the cost is very low. And then once they have that certainty that the, that the cost of failure is low, they just, they can move very, very quickly. I love it. That's like people listening, right? They hear that and they're like, that's the culture. That's the type of company I want to be a part of. And then you can attract your tribe that way. I, I will also say that, you know, as a geopolitics you know, analysis company, everybody on the team is, is interested in knowing more about what is happening in the world. So we have lots of, you know, lots of communication and Slack channels of like, oh, here's, here's interesting news coming out of, uh, coming out of Hong Kong or, you know, uh, or things happening in, uh, you know, in Venezuela. So you know, things happening in the EU or you know, Brexit. So you know, we're, we're looking for, we value engineers who, ultimately you know, who, who care about not just technology, but again, what, it, you know, what is happening in the world? How do we, uh, yeah. How do we identify real, you know, real trends, real information, uh, and derive insight that we can get to customers as quickly as possible. Boom. I love it. You guys all passion. You're all driven towards this goal. Yeah. Nice. So as we start to wrap up, what are you most excited about today? Like what's the thing that you're really pumped up about today? In general, uh, I mean, I, I guess I'd still say machine learning. I, I think that, I mean, so why ahead, yeah. a machine learning company? Uh, but I, I think that 
there are so many different opportunities in ML that are going to have uh, major major impacts on what you know, what the world looks like, and many of them potentially in the relatively short term. Uh, sometimes, though, I, I, I mean, I'm excited about it. But I'm also nervous. I mean, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for abuse with many of the advances that I'm seeing. For example, we've been playing around a lot with a, a model called Grover, which does uh, text generation, basically. And you can use this to make amazing fake news uh, and very difficult to potentially very difficult to identify fake news. And so that's, it's very, it's exciting and fun to see, you know, to use Grover as a chat bot, but it's also, uh, yeah, it, it does make me nervous. So, uh, I know that the world is going to change. Like this, there's no, we can't put, uh, can't close Pandora's box here. Like the technology exists, uh, we're going to have to contend with it. I believe it can uh, make the world a better place, uh, but we need to be we need to be on our guard. Uh, what I what I worry about is that ML uh, will have some sort of Chernobyl moment where, with all of the innovation going on, some you know, we some angle has been missed or uh, some. You know, ethical consideration hasn't been uh, taken into account, and then there's a uh, a major disruption that that causes, uh, yeah, basically causes regulation to go, come into the place that makes it hard to to do this work in the states. Uh, and and I, I mean, I want the innovation to happen here, uh, but I think that we need to make sure that we don't uh, that we, we don't cause a major disruption that that would. Uh, affect the ability to do that research in the States as opposed to somewhere else in the world. So I saw you had an office in Washington, right? Yes. And that's where my sister lives. But also that's where one of our guests was, um, Anish. He was the first CTO of the United States of America. Okay. And now he's doing something with analytics. But uh, he had mentioned to me, I would listen to that episode with Anish, Anish uh, Chopra because he mentioned to me that this um, organization, this group uh, that gets together, that helps decide future technologies for the United States, and it's a way for you to like get involved at a very high level with the policy and technology. I don't know much about it, but he was talking about it, and it was super interesting. Yeah, I, yeah that, that sounds very interesting. It's something where I think we operate in the right space to, to add something to the to the conversation right the best way to predict the future is to create it right yeah. so if you guys are like we want we want to make sure policy heads in the right direction for this go get involved in one of the groups yeah i also believe that the best way to predict the future is to understand the present uh and, and maybe that's the same with innovation right the, the future is already here it's just not evenly distributed uh, so yeah being able to understand what's what's happening today uh, and uh, responding as quickly as possible to that information I understand what's happening today. Pre-data is killing it. <laughs> I love it. Any other ways we can help today? Uh, we have a weekly newsletter. Um, oh, cool. Which is also, can also be found on our website. So if anything, you know, if anybody's listening who's interested in uh, what machine learning can do to uh, identify geopolitical trends, you should check out that newsletter. Very cool. Geopolitical yeah. machine learning trends. Awesome. Have a fantastic day, Colin. I'll have Jake and Chloe loop back with you. This was fun, Joel. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.